Welcome, everyone. This is Sasha in Moving Mountains. Today, I have the pleasure of crossing paths with Ron Richard, inventor, entrepreneur, and author. Ron has been employed in the medical industry for over 35 years and has extensive knowledge and experience in respiratory, pulmonary, and sleep medicine. He began his medical career working in a respiratory department at a large teaching hospital in the Midwest. Upon leaving the medical center, he became involved in owning and operating home care companies sleep laboratories, manufacturers, and distribution businesses. He's played an instrumental role in developing and designing several products used in the treatment and diagnosis of chronic healthcare conditions. He has launched over 40 major products resulting in sales of over $1 billion. He discusses his experiences in his first book, Someday is Today. Get your ideas out of your coffee cup and on the market. Help me welcome Ron Richard. Welcome to Moving Mountains, Ron. Hi, how are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. Today we're here to explore your book, Some Days Today, Get Your Ideas Out of Your Coffee Cup and on the Market. You happen to have a few decades worth of experience in the medical field. What made you initially gravitate towards working in respiratory care? Yeah, my background is uh, I, I am a respiratory therapist and a paramedic, so I worked in a teaching hospital for about eight years. So that, that's how I kind of got started in the medical field. Being an inventor and also an entrepreneur, do you believe that the barriers of entry are greater or have they decreased in the medical device industry? I think they're greater today than they were when I first, uh, my first invention, I made a communication board for patients who were innovated and on a ventilator back in the late 1970s. So the process back then was uh, much easier because there were smaller companies that were willing to take a, a risk on a, on a new product. But over time, there's been so much consolidation in the medical industry. Uh, these big companies are getting bigger, and they're buying, buying basically all the smaller companies. So there's less opportunities for inventors, but there's, there's definitely still uh, room to bring new innovative products to market. Uh, you just have to do it a little bit more strategically and a little bit smarter. You just reference innovative products, and in your book you talk about revolutionary products, and you encourage people to come up with evolutionary products. Would you be kind in expanding the difference? Yeah, you know, when I talk to inventors, they, they kind of, you know, if I ask them to do an elevator pitch and kind of go into a little more detail about it, those two words typically come up. It's either it's an evolutionary product, which means it's a continuation of maybe some current technology that they've made uh, some improvements on, uh, fine-tuning it or tweaks. When I hear the word revolutionary, it kind of makes my hair stand up. It's like, well, there's a lot of pioneering efforts that are typically put into quote-unquote revolutionary products, and adoption's typically slow. Uh, doctors and clinicians are a little bit leery uh, about bringing in what would be called a revolutionary product. 
and the market's been burned by uh, in the past few years, like Theranos and other companies that have touted this, uh, you know, this micro blood sampling system that actually turned out to be uh, nothing but a hoax. But anyway, the the, uh, the products that I've seen be most successful really are continuation of current technology with. Uh, it reduces uh, the barrier to entry. It also reduces your issues when you go to file uh, with the FDA for 510K and also for reimbursement. So there's a number of things that I encourage people to take a look at. Uh, obviously, if you want to you know, try to you know, hit a ball out of the park, hit a home run, you, you go for the revolutionary thing, but uh, oftentimes it's met with a lot of skepticism and, and cost and uh, friction in terms of getting it into the market. So if money and technology weren't an issue, how can uh, entrepreneurs and groups remain, retain their competitive advantage in the market? Yeah, I think the best way is to um, – I, I encourage inventors when they're developing new technology to do a lot of focus groups and get a lot of information from end users before – they really uh, embark on prototyping and filing for patents and things like that just to see, you know, if their product really has a right to survive in the marketplace and if there's really a need there. So I always approach it from if there's a problem with current technology, the competitive edge would be to develop an evolutionary product that uh, meets or exceeds all the current uh, uh, what I call problem-solution kinds of scenarios. Referencing the metaphor in your book titled, Getting the Ideas Out of Your Coffee Cup, what was the very first idea that you conceptualized and launched in the market? Yeah, it was the one that I just ref- referenced a little bit ago. It's a communication board. So as a respiratory therapist, <clears throat> I often dealt with people or patients that were on ventilators. And when you're intubated, you lose the ability to speak. And it's very frustrating, so uh, I took it upon myself to create a simple solution uh, for patients and also for the clinicians that enabled them to get simple things that they they needed or wanted, uh, just using this communication board, which went on to sell about 500,000 copies, and uh, it was sold around the world in multiple different languages. So uh, that was my first product, and uh, to date I've got 17 patents and have launched uh, well over 50 products globally uh, with sales that have exceeded a billion dollars. You referenced the patents, and a patent pending could be from several months to a year plus. What do you encourage entrepreneurs to do while they're waiting for the patent to be approved? Yeah, while it's in the pending phase, you actually have about, it's about a 12-month cycle to get a review and uh, get a patent pending status notification from uh, the USPTO. But in that time, you can continue to do market research. You can continue to do focus groups, um, spend some time and money on building out some functional prototypes uh, that you can test. Uh, there's there's quite a few things you can do while, while it's under a patent pending status. You know, And also, I encourage people to continue to really peruse the internet and uh, the market that they're in and continue to look for uh, new products that competitors are launching that may be uh, an overlap or competing with them and um, continue to have your patent attorneys uh, do the due diligence and search for any conflicts that may potentially be uh, 
in the past or maybe in the in the future that are going to be coming out? Let's say there happens to be an overlap of an idea and you end up in a cross-licensing deal. Would you consider that to be the worst-case scenario? No. There's, I've, there's been uh, situations where I've actually, and this is part of the problem with when you file a patent pending, let's say you, know, you could have two or three companies that file potentially on the same product, uh, the same features. You know, they came up with the same idea by working with clinicians or whatever. And it just so happens that, you know, their patent attorneys are more aggressive or the filing comes out, the approval comes out sooner. Uh, the timing of it could be a few months apart. But I had a client actually launch a product and then was approached by another company where uh, they were on the market already with their product, and then this other company had filed a patent. It was under pending status, and then it was approved. And the other company wasn't, was not as aggressive uh, on the patent uh, filing side. So they ended up in uh, – they tried a cross-licensing agreement. The, the profit margins just weren't going to work out, so the uh, company, unfortunately, just had to pull the product off the market and they lost about uh, almost close to $3 million um, in the, on the R&D side. And they are also had a bunch of inventory. But ultimately, what, if that does happen, what, I, what, what I've seen that's successful is to approach people and try to keep litigation to a minimum, but uh, work towards a cross-licensing agreement. So for creations in the medical device industry, are there certain prerequisites that the device needs to host that it requires the FDA approval, and is the FDA approval needed prior to filing for a patent? To answer your last question, no, you can file for a patent without having a 510K. Um, a lot of times you'll file for the patent almost in parallel with your 510K if, if you have uh, workable prototypes that have um, the functionality of what you're going to go to market and get your 510K on. You, you don't want to have a vast uh, you know, changes in the product from the electronics. Or the latest thing the FDA has been, at least in my world, with respiratory and sleep and ventilation and whatnot, they're focused on uh, biocompatibility and toxicology testing, which there's been a whole new series of standards been put out over the past 12 months that is causing companies to um, retrench and look at uh, other types of materials they can use for tubing, connectors, anything made out of silicone, plastic, uh, polypropylene, those types of things. So that's one of the curveballs that people when they're filing for FDA 510K in uh, standards kind of move around and there's some dynamics associated with that. Those, those are the curveballs that, uh, or I call them rocks in the river, that you've got to be able to, to work around. And sometimes in the case of toxicology and biocompatibility testing, it's expensive, uh, can cost anywhere from two to $300,000, and it can take up to six weeks to two months to get the results. Working with patent lawyers could be challenging for somebody starting out from scratch. What advice do you have for certain qualities or certain variables they should look for in that patent-specific niche law firm before they hire yeah. the lawyer? I'd say do a thorough interview process whereby you, you want to specifically know uh, what patents they filed and 
not just filed, but what have they actually gotten been successful in, in getting a patent, not just patent pending. And then drill down and get more specific about the types of clients they're working with. Um, unfortunately, you can go to a law firm, let's say, for instance, that's been really good in terms of filing patents for a medical manufacturer that specializes in sleep or respiratory, and they won't be able to, if you have a similar type of product, there's a conflict of interest, and they wouldn't be able to handle you as a client. So what you have to do is, you know, it takes quite a bit of due diligence and searching to find the right patent attorney that can work with you and get your patents filed, obviously. But the other thing I look for is not just looking at your product from a real flat kind of perspective. The best patent attorneys I've worked with, they ask a lot of questions in terms of use and application, and they try to find other patents that you can file in addition to what you thought you were going to file for. I've had discussions with patent attorneys that ended up finding um, four or five other uh, patents out of just the one concept or one idea or one product. So that that's really great when you find patent attorneys that can uh, you know kind of think through this and look at more use cases for your product and get you know a broader kind of a, a filing put in place. Are there any circumstances under which a patent can be le- legally revoked? Uh, yes, I've actually had a couple cases where uh, patents were issued and the examiner or reviewers didn't do a thorough enough referencing of the patents that they'd signed off on. And then there was litigation through the, through the court process. It was discovered that uh, the patents were invalid and basically revoked um, after the cases were heard. And by any chance, is there a patent ceiling for a certain type of product within a specific niche? For example, you have a product out, Bongo RX, that caters to this with a very mm-hmm. minimal or moderate sleep apnea. Let's say there's a 25th patent that has been filed for a sleep apnea product in a year or a 24-month period. But would that work to your advantage or disadvantage? Because the market may become a bit too saturated. Mhm. Yeah, and it can that's a good point. It can be saturated, but it it also can be confusing when your sales reps or you're trying to talk with a physician or clinician about I have product A, well it looks a lot like and it kind of works like product B. Can you tell me the differences and, you know, explain to me what your patents cover uh if you know what this this other company's patents cover? So, yeah, you can have <laughs> you can have some really uh, dicey issues where, like your your example of uh, the Bongo RX, uh, people would often ask about that product and how it compared to a competitor's product, which was Provent, and they mechanically kind of work the same. The patents differentiated though in the sense of how the uh, the technology was applied to the patient, but the results were very similar in terms of the clinical outcomes. I think, does that answer your question? Yes, and thank you for explaining. Uh, for educational purposes, uh, sleep apnea is a common uh, it's a condition out there. Sleep apnea is environmentally caused. Is it through lifestyle choices? Because I've met more adults who have shared that they were diagnosed in their adult life with sleep apnea, and mm-hmm. some people have that uh, implanted CPAP machine, and then there are others mm-hmm. that, 
rely upon other devices. Yeah, the typical profile of a patient is they're an adult in their probably uh, middle-aged. Um, they're, uh, they're typically also obese. Uh, there's a ratio of your body mass index to what's called your apnea hypopnea index. And the way it manifests itself typically is snoring. Uh, the patient will snore loudly, stop breathing, and it's because of the weight that's being placed on the uh, upper airway. Um, there can be other complications too in terms of the formation of the upper airway. Um, there's some patients that have large tongues, they have narrow airways, and the tongue can block the throat, which can cause interruption in breathing. But about, it's, it's uh, the latest data that was published, uh, sleep apnea affects about 8% of the adult population in the United States. And there currently is over probably 20 million people that use some form of treatment to, um, to help them with their sleep apnea. And you mentioned one of the newer technologies is actually replaces a CPAP machine, which is continuous positive airway pressure. It's a device that um, puts out airflow, and then the patient wears a, a mask that's sealed over their, their nose or their face, and uh, the air is creating a mechanical stent that keeps the airway from collapsing. And this other new technology is by a company called Inspire. It's actually an implant that stimulates a very important muscle in the upper airway known as the hypoglossal muscle. When you stimulate that muscle, it creates tension in the upper airway and keeps the airway open. And uh, so they do a, a simple implant. And then there's a remote control at the patient's bedside that is controlling the, uh, the implant and generating a frequency that uh, through an electrical frequency, by the way, that stimulates the hypoglossal muscle. So there, there, there's a lot of new innovations that are alternatives to CPAP, but CPAP typically is still the most common, low-cost, uh, non-invasive treatment that's uh, used to, uh, to um, you know, help people that have these types of breathing problems. And, you know, some people, when they lose weight, Patients, I've seen them get off of CPAP and they don't need treatment any longer. So uh, weight loss programs in conjunction with exercise, diet, can oftentimes uh, help, help these patients that have uh, breathing conditions. And you also have experience working with insomnia patients. Is there such a thing of incurring insomnia without any pre-existing condition? But you have insomnia without any lifestyle choices that led you to have insomnia? Yeah, I worked for a company for two years that uh, developed a, um, a non-drug, a non-pharmaceutical uh, treatment for insomnia. And what I learned over that two years, I was working at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center uh, doing research. Insomnia is a really complex disorder, and it can be transient. It can be also refractory in uh, there's uh, various ways of treating it, and you mentioned like having a pre-existing condition. Um, I'm not too sure about that because most of the patients that you know, I had looked at their history and physical and um, their uh, you know notes and their charts and whatnot. They were anxious. Um, they had insomnia that was. Uh, uh, they had insomnia flare-ups due to changes in their lifestyle, 
and um, stress typically was another factor. Um, it could also be related to, I found, to drinking caffeine too late at night or staying up too late, playing video games or watch, just watching TV, having too much blue light uh, in your room before you go to bed can also create insomnia. But, yeah, there's a number of different, uh, both lifestyle things and as well as uh, depression and uh, other types of mental, mental issues that affect people and create insomnia, insomniac types of conditions. And as the entrepreneur, you're able to bring solutions to the market to assist and improve people's quality of life. As we explore your entrepreneurial endeavors and we transition to marketing, from your personal experience, what aspect of marketing did you find challenging given the products yeah. that you launch in the market? Yeah, mar well, I've been doing marketing and sales and uh, business development for probably 30 years. And marketing uh, of products typically were done through trade shows, through magazines. Uh, you know, most recently I've been doing a lot through social media platforms as well to get more la laser focused on, uh, you know, people that are reading or trying to find solutions for certain things via Facebook, WebMD, or different websites, or Instagram. Um, so that's been somewhat of a change. Uh, and it depends on the audience that you're marketing to. Oftentimes, I'm trying to market to clinicians like doctors or uh, therapists that are trying to find, uh, find out about new technologies. Now, the challenge in the, this COVID era has been really interesting because I've tried virtual trade shows. They haven't really worked all that well. But what has been working for my clients is that we've been doing a lot more digital-based assets, utilizing um, Zoom, Microsoft Team, and different ways to uh, connect that way. And I actually found that a number of cl clinicians that we've interviewed post-training and sales presentations have found it to be easier than waiting for a sales rep to show up at the hospital. Uh, they find that it's better use of their time, it's more efficient, and the companies are finding that it's reducing their travel expenses, and also it's a more efficient way maybe to uh, conduct business initially to do do demos. So in the the COVID era, what I find is people are pivoting and they're using more of like say digital technology that consists of um, uh, the Zoom you know Zoom types of meetings, but also doing a lot more with podcasts and with uh, you know, short videos that are posted either on YouTube channels or uh, just sent directly to the the clinician for viewing on their computer in the hospital. Speaking of your book, Some Days Today, Get Your Ideas Out of Your Coffee Cup and On the Market. When did you begin writing it? And how was your experience writing the book, given that you're reliving some of these experiences? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny. I'm I'm also a touring musician, and um, I've been playing music professionally for a number of years. And I was touring with a band, and when COVID hit, obviously a lot of venues were closed down, and so my entire tour schedule was canceled for uh, several months. So I started writing the, the book last year in March. Uh, I thought, well, if I'm not going to be able to, you know, do do my tour, I'd do something else. And I, I don't know if I mentioned, I actually got the idea to write this book. I was invited to do a guest lecture series at uh, Stanford University specifically for doctors and clinicians who 
wanted to get their product ideas to market. And I, I kind of took the subtitle of the book from a doctor I was talking to at Stanford who mentioned, I have so many good ideas, but I just can't seem to get them out of my coffee cup. So that kind of stuck in my mind, and I use it as a subtitle because a lot of times people just sit there at their desk and they think of all these great ideas, but they never they don't take action. And uh, I kind of use a term when I talk to inventors that if they see a need to plant a seed, and you have to nourish the seed to make it grow. So it's the same thing with an idea. If you have an idea, if it just sits there on your desk or in your coffee cup, it'll never go anywhere. So uh, I started writing the book in March, and I finished it in December. And uh, it was the first book I've ever – I've written a lot of articles for magazines and for journals, <clears throat> but this is the first book I've I've ever written. And I was really lucky. I, had a, I have a friend that's written seven or eight books, and he – kind of took me under his wing and became my, my Sherpa for uh, the book pro- process. And he was really kind to uh, review it, give me input along the way. And I think that really helped me a lot because uh, he also encouraged me not to give up because there's a lot of times when you get, you know, in that process of writing where you get writer's block, uh, it was helpful to have somebody like that to keep me motivated and to finish it. Were there any topics that you initially included, but you decided to leave out and vice versa? You know, it's kind of funny. I approached writing this book much like uh, I write music and songs. Uh, I I created a framework and a structure that was fairly high level and then started to fill in the content. So there really wasn't a lot of changes once I had the framework completed. It gave me pretty much after I had you know, those interim reviews like I, I did with my friend, um, it became a lot clearer to me, you know, how the chapters were going to be lined up and how the whole book was going to flow, just like very similar to the way I write music. And Ron, you also happen to be the founder at BLD Medical Consulting. What are the top two reasons that clients seek you out? Uh, mainly with uh, what I've done in the past and been successful was uh, creating uh, effective marketing programs for them and helping them with uh, putting together Salesforce uh, that consist of either direct people or independents and tapping into the, you know, the extensive amount of uh, resources and people that I know in the industry. And as we start to wrap things up, what piece of guidance do you have for entrepreneurs in the medical field? They have enough ideas in their coffee cup, but what action item do you provide? Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of times I like to just spend 20, 30 minutes with people and get a general idea of what their goals and objectives are with the product and what what they've used in the past, and I go back to a simple formula. You see a problem currently, and what what solutions are you bringing to the market with your product um, that's going to be compelling, cost-effective? You know, in this day and age, everything, you know, it's a ROI cost uh, kind of a ratio. So go through that in terms of, um, and then also go through how they're going to fund it and how many years do, do they think they're going to be involved with the project and do they want to own it? Do they want to license it? Do they want to sell it? So yeah, within about 30 minutes, I can give them fairly good guidance, and then they can decide if uh, they want me to be part of their uh, part of their team. Finally, was there any piece of advice that you received in your career path 
or in your entrepreneurial endeavors and you realize it's not true, you pass it along so others don't follow that guidance. Mm. Uh, you know, one thing I'd say to inventors is, you know, it's just like me writing my first book probably would, will be hard, but the next one will be a little easier. It's the same thing with inventions. So don't give up, uh, be persistent, and, uh, you know, just try to keep a smile on your face and, and keep it as fun as possible because um, there's certainly going to be, like I say, rocks in the river and curveballs, but uh, don't let it get you down. Just um, you know, keep that vision of why you started with that idea, the, the plant a seed if you see a need, and just uh, water it and fertilize it. And, you know, eventually that product could be used here in the United States or in some cases all over the world to help a lot of patients uh, and improve their outcomes and uh, their quality of life. So that that's the, the joy that you get out of doing inventions, I think, is just seeing the end results and how patients um, – how they respond to it. Ron, thank you for sharing your wisdom. Can you please share with audiences how they can connect with you? Yeah, my website's uh, inventingstartstoday.com, and the book is available on Amazon and also on Barnes & Noble. And thank you for the time today. I really appreciate it.